what we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. And I never learned any rules. Mine was just do what you want, make what feels good. Just keep playing until you're happy with it. Welcome back to Meet Bridget, a show that gets into the nitty gritty of the often untold teenage and young adult experiences of successful women from all types of backgrounds and in all sorts of careers. This show is an extension of Bridget, a confidence coaching service for young women. I'm Kishia Rosenberg, and I co-host this show alongside my best friend and Bridget's CEO, Asha Gabriel. Today, we are bringing a true wizard and artist to our show, artist and founder of The Idea Emporium, a full-service event branding, detail, and stationary company that focuses on bringing sentiment to life. She has a knack, and I use that word so lightly because it just doesn't (laughs) encompass it, for making time stand still through her impeccable creations. And she's a master of weaving deeply personal storytelling into the fabric and material she touches, through which entire fairy tales emerge. Meet Carrie Lowe. I'm a self-described free spirit whose work is regularly featured in publications such as Martha Stewart Weddings. Carrie believes in the fine details, and she's made it the mission of the Idea Emporium to design tangible representations of her clients' stories. Everything she makes is original, innovative, and utterly bespoke. Citing her own marriage as the inspiration for her work, Carrie has brought artistry, storytelling, and age-old creative processes back to the forefront of event design. If you follow her on Instagram, you'll understand that the word meticulous doesn't even begin to describe how she functions in her many crafts. Carrie Lowe is truly in a class of her own, and today she has gifted us with her time. So Carrie, we're so honored to have you on the show. Welcome. Ladies, that's like the nicest intro I've ever heard in my life. I feel so good about myself. Who is this girl that you're describing? You should. You should. Yeah. <laughs> even Nero down. I was like, mm, well, okay, well, this will do. Literally, I have so much respect for you and so much admiration for our audience. Carrie, I had the incredible honor of having Carrie's mind and creativity on my wedding in Lake Tahoe in 2019. And, you know, I told her our story and some details that were just like central to like just all the sentimental yumminess of our wedding. And she she was able to just like grasp onto the most essential parts and create these details of our wedding. Like what I love about Carrie is that, you know, when you think of like the people, the vendors that put together a wedding, you know, there's so many people that come together to make something beautiful. But Carrie's kind of created her own category. Like there is stationery in weddings, like there's paper goods, right? Like people like, oh, the paper stuff. But then Carrie does all that in the most beautiful way possible. But she also does like, it's like this 3D creation. She does all the paper goods, but she also does the little fine details and literally will make things out of nothing to just represent your day, your relationship. Um, I'm like, I'm trying to like even explain. I feel like I need you to write my website copy. This is great. Oh my gosh, I will. I will just film me and I'll be like, (laughs) how do you now? (laughs) If you can get on her books, like the details, I I literally have them. And she she put so many of the little details she made for my wedding 
into a special little box for me. And it's literally, I keep it right under my bed, like oh. right in a very specific place. It's, it's something I would grab if my house were on fire. Good. They Aww. are like so, so special and sweet. So we're so excited to just dive in because I love having women on the pod that have kind of created their own career, created mm-hmm. something that works for them because they they tend to have incredible success because that's what the world needs more of. So before I ramble anymore, Carrie, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and your childhood. What what do you remember yeah. about your So I'm from California, born and bred, California raised. Um, I grew up on the Central Coast, which was magical. My parents really wanted to have a big family, but that just wasn't biologically in the cards for them. And so when I was about, um, I think, six, my parents got a foster license and we fostered kids. Somehow, one of our first placements was a toddler. And so we got the car seat and the stroller and the high chair and all that, the baby infrastructure. And once you are a foster family that has the infrastructure for a little person instead of like a little kid, um, like a baby, we basically just became like the go-to for CPS for that. So there was an infant or a toddler in the house for um, seven straight years, which is... Oh my a lot. Um, and also a really wonderful and very different way to grow up because most people have a sibling that's like a baby and then a toddler and then a little kid that you can play around with and then a kid that you probably bump heads with because you're too close in age and then a teenager and then you develop like a your relationship continues to evolve as both of you age. And instead, I kept aging, but my siblings stayed the same because my siblings were always an infant toddler, infant toddler, infant toddler, infant toddler for years, which was really, really unique. And I think gave me some life lessons um, and also gave me a very unfiltered version of like, this is what it means to have a baby. Like it's not, it's not easy um, because I saw it for such a prolonged period of time. But it also gave me some really incredible life lessons about like generosity and and sharing and not just like sharing your toys as a six-year-old child, but like sharing your heart, sharing your life, sharing your family with somebody that I think really have kind of filtered into my subconscious in a really unique and special way. So that's a thing that I've told my parents that I'm like pretty grateful for, that that was a a really incredible visual and an incredible example of what it means to care for people, you know, especially people that you're not necessarily biologically related to. What a cool way to start this interview out because I didn't have the pleasure of working with you one-on-one, but I know the magic of who you are through being a part of Asha's wedding and then just like fangirling out ever since You're then. so sweet. But, <laughs> but it makes total sense to me that your parents, I mean, what an example of keeping your heart open and being caregivers as you described. And I can really imagine how that just sort of seeped in like via like the parental osmosis into you. Because you were so young when this got started, do you feel like you had a lot of different opportunities to be creative and help out? Or were you a little more hands off and just watched? Or did you really take on like that big sister role to, you know, seven years of infants and toddlers? I mean, there was a fair amount of diapers that got changed. (laughs) I'm <laughs> and now when I like babysit my nephews, I'm like, nope, you gotta go to mom and dad for a diaper change. I'm I'm done. I've tapped my <laughs> limit. I've already hit the lifetime maximum capacity. 
it just kind of alters the way that you view things. I mean, my parents were obviously the parents. I was a kid and a sibling, but it was a really great way to not turn into a stereotypical only child. You know, there was not Mm -hmm. only somebody to play with and share things with, but somebody that like my parents would instill in me, like, no, your job is to teach them how to share, how to play with another kid, you know, like how to be a generously spirited young person. And that means not taking the toy away or saying, no, you're too little. It means getting down on your hands and knees and playing with them, you know, and and that part of the adolescence growth spurt that happens when you're, I mean, I shouldn't even say adolescence, baby growth spurt, you know, like when you're really, really little, those very formative memories that people don't really even, I think, realize how much that factors in that you know, you learn how to hug and you learn how to kiss when you're a baby and you learn how to share mm-hmm. affection. And um, not all of the foster kids that came to us had ever experienced that. And seeing a baby that doesn't know how to give you a hug is really a really heartbreaking thing. But then teaching that baby how to give a hug and after they've lived with you for five or six months and they're, you know, their parents have been rehabilitated and they're reunited with their biological family. And they come back to them as like a whole different person who now has experienced familial love and like household love and affection is really pretty magical. Safety, I can imagine. So I love this part of your story. I've known you for a long time and I didn't know this about you. And now I'm like just kind of thinking about how you are today. And it is so clear that it's like, you know, we're talking about these infants, you know, mm-hmm. and shaping them and helping be a part of that kind of change and affection for them. It's so clear too that it's affected you. I mean, I'm here thinking about like I have a three year old almost, and you know, a, a one year old. She is wonderful and so affectionate, but she has definitely like it's a learning curve for watching her. I'm like, I know this is like very difficult for her to like look and be like, okay, it's not just me anymore. There's another one here how does this work? You know, like, like, is she going to take some of my affection from mom and dad? Like, I have to share my toys and all these learnings that are going on with her. But I'm at the same time, I'm so grateful that she's going through that, you know, but it's it is hard work. And I'm just sitting here imagining you as a young person doing that again, and again, and again. And it's just like, that makes sense, knowing how, how good you are at pulling out those those heartstrings. Really, you are like, you're able to kind of reach in, you know, and find the heartstring yeah. in someone and, and share it beautifully with the world. Um, so I, I love this part of your story. Yeah, and thanks. It's, it's I mean, my parents, my parents get a lot of credit for that. I was raised by two very, very loving people who loved me, loved each other, loved everybody around them. Um, and I think that that, that in itself, I am grateful that I am aware of how special that is and how impactful that has been. My parents were also soulmates, hands down, without a doubt, madly in love with each other. I come from, I like to say that I come from a long line of soulmates. Like that's the family tradition. I love Um, that. So, yeah. So I'd say that that was a very unique facet to my childhood that really shaped who I grew up to be. I don't think I quite realized it until decades later, but I'm very, very, very thankful for that experience in hindsight. So I love it. I'm also really curious with your work now, which we'll get into a little bit later. I feel like you have a lot of opportunities to play and be creative, which 
you know, a lot of adults in their respective careers now, I don't think would be able to say the same thing. In, in a household full of children, young children, and when Carrie, how did you play as a kid, like by yourself? What, yes. You know, how did you entertain yourself? I want to know uh, <laughs> how this all got started. We called them valuable art projects because that's what I would call them. And my dad had file cabinets full of my valuable art projects that I would not allow him to throw away. I just would make stuff. I was constantly making things. Toilet paper tubes, you're not allowed to throw those out in our house. Those are for me to make art projects out of. I don't know what they're going to be yet, but I'm going to do something. I was a deeply creative person, I'd say, from the moment that I was born. I just wanted to make things with my hands. My parents put me in um, what's called Monart, M-O-N-A-R-T, classes as a child, which is all about like um, learning to see things in shapes. So the whole concept is based on like a straight line, a curved line, a filled in shape, an open shape, and angles. And that's it. And if you can master those principles, you can draw or make pretty much anything. And I really kind of fell in love with that concept that like the whole world is available for making stuff. And so that is far and away. Like I think that most children probably play sports or play outside. And there was a decent amount of like, go run outside, be barefoot for a while. But if left to my own devices, I would be up to my elbows in glue sticks and, you know, squiggly eyes and like pipe cleaners and puff paint. Like it was, for me, it was a nonstop production zone of, I just want to make stuff. And then I was really, really fortunate that because of where we lived, it was just kind of like a little hot spot for artists, people who painted. Um, and my parents were friends with a bunch of artists and they didn't mind letting me just kind of hang out in their professional art studios while they made masterpieces for people on commission. And I would just play and doodle and make things in the studio space of these like incredible professional artists. And I think that subconsciously let me know that artistry is a viable career path and also that the money is not the objective. The art is the objective. Making something that you're proud of, making something that feels good in the process of making, making something that is nice to look at um, was way more of a priority than how much can you sell a painting for? Can you actually support yourself as a quote unquote starving artist? Because in hindsight, now that I'm like looking back at these people that I thought of as role models as a child, none of them were financially thriving artists, but they were all creatively thriving artists. And I think that was a really, really fortunate lesson to learn on a subconscious level because it didn't hold me back. And I think a lot of people who either like go to school for art or design, they learn all the rules, right? And I never learned any rules. Mine was just do what you want, make what feels good, just keep playing until you're happy with it. Um, and I think that really served me well that I wasn't held back by the rigidity of a structure that art doesn't have to fit into a structure that creativity doesn't have to fit into a like a box or a specific form um, that it's more about exploration than anything else I love that your parents knew to kind of put you around yeah adults doing art that is one of our foundational principles at Bridget is that visibility is everything and we've seen it firsthand, like Kashia and I had had the opportunity to work with um, a group of teen mothers in some workshops. 
And we did a couple polls of these um, young women asking, like, what are some career paths you would consider? And nearly every one of these young moms said neonatal nurse. And, you know, we kind of got into it and we studied and we were like, this is interesting. Like, why? I'm like, it's clearly because they had a very intimate experience, you know, just intimate emotional experience with these women by their sides, you know, and they felt seen by these women. And that connection made it feel like a pathway for them. So it's so great to hear that your parents knew to kind of be like, okay, she's into this stuff. Like, let's get her around people that are doing this with their lives. And it's clear how freeing that was for you to kind of see that and be like, okay, like my path might not look exactly, I don't have to do exactly what they're doing, you know, and I likely won't, especially in art, but it's, it's a path. Like there are artists that are adults and they're living and happy. (laughs) So great. And you just naturally felt safe to go along this path that just, you know, it unfolded. I really love how you bring up, you know, the lesson of not seeking the financial gain first because it destroys basically the whole purpose of art, which is to create and to create freely. And I think that that's what really comes across in your work is like, you just go for it. And it sort of reminds me of that, you know, that age old question where it's like, what would you do if you had no limitation? Like if money was no issue, if, you know, they ask that question, I feel like in high school, sometimes before you're, you know, when you're trying to figure out what you're going to do. But, you know, a lot of people, like you said, get bogged down by the reality of how am I going to make money doing this? And so I think a lot of people end up erring away from their true passions, which often, you know, ends up being something creative in lieu of something, you know, more institutional, I would say, like, you know, doctor, lawyer, which really responsible has nothing to do with it. (laughs) Well, and I mean, I will say that you know, I feel like it would be irresponsible for me to not say, take a business class, everybody. It's going to, you're not going <laughs> to yeah. like it, but you really, really should. I mean, the the stereotypical starving artist mantra happens for a reason. And it's that my brain is just at, like, my priorities are different. My brain functions different. I'm not motivated financially, which is great when you're building art, but not super great when you're trying to build a business. And I think a lot of those of us who are creative entrepreneurs get into it because we love doing the work, right? Like I would do this job for free. I love it so much. I do free projects for almost every single one of my clients just because I want to. I'm like, I don't even, it exceeds your budget. That's okay. I just want to do it. Like, it's just going to be cool and I'm just going to do it anyway. But then we also get stuck in this position of, great, now you've made the thing, but also you're a small business owner. So now you got to figure out how to send an invoice and now you got to figure out how to charge sales Mm -hmm. tax. You know, and it's that learning how to use the other side of your brain. So, so continuing through childhood, here's yes. where it gets real fun. So yes. the like elementary school, junior high years were really focused on the babies, the family relationships. Mm-hmm. Then we get to high school. A scheduling mistake happens in the counseling office my freshman year. And instead of getting put in honor science, I got put in ag science, agriculture science. Oh. And... Full disclosure, I just was too nervous as a freshman to go into the counseling office and say, I think I'm in the wrong class. Um, So instead, I stuck with it. And my ag science teacher realized very quickly that I talked a lot and never really shut up. I was like constantly that kid in class that was like, do you really have to have a conversation right now while we're in the middle of whatever? And so she, Mrs. Evans, shout out to Mrs. Evans. She said, okay, since you're so chatty, I'd like you to memorize this. 
and you're going to do a public speaking contest. And I was like, what? Oh, no. and that was it. I was hooked. So because it was an agriculture class that made me an automatic member of an organization called the FFA, the Future Farmers of America. And once she put me in that speaking contest, I was addicted. I couldn't get enough of it. Like the I had finally found something that felt competitive in the way that I think a lot of other people felt about sports. Like it feels good to be challenged and pushed and and compete and be, you know, told like, hey, you're doing really good at this or hey, there's room for improvement here, but you really want to seek out that improvement. And I couldn't get enough of it because I'd never really experienced that because I was not a sports kind of kid. And so once I did the public speaking contest, I was like, what else do you have? And so through that organization, through the Future Farmers of America, I got on the floriculture team, which is competitive floral design. And I give that experience, I wouldn't say full credit for my business, but a substantial amount of credit for my business because it gave me a foundational knowledge of techniques for like, this is how you keep flowers alive. This is how you properly wire them for use in special events. And it gave me a physical set of skills that were incredibly marketable. So by the time I was a senior in high school, we were state champions. Shout out to my team. Um, And then we got robbed at nationals, which 20 years later, I'm still bitter about, but that's another story. But it gave me this set of applicable skills in combination with the creativity that I already had innately and just like the desire to make things. And so basically the moment that I graduated high school, people would say, hey, you know, a friend of mine is getting married in the backyard and we're going to buy a bunch of flowers at Farmer's Market. Will you come over and arrange them? And I said, sure. So that was totally my start into weddings. It wasn't because I wanted to be a florist. It wasn't because I wanted to be a, a wedding designer. It just was I had a set of skills and I had friends that needed those skills. And so I continued to get to practice them and and to get to play with them. And as I started to see more and more weddings and special events was like, wow, this is actually really stinking cool. Also through the FFA, I did, this is so nerdy, but that's okay. Competitive scrapbooking, which was probably my pride and joy as a teenager was, you know, everybody else was like buying stickers and I was making my own stickers and making my own little raised dimensional shapes to put on these scrapbook pages. And it was so fun. And I loved, I still love scrapbooking. And I think I love it because it's very small. All of the pieces are really miniature and I just have a soft spot for teeny tiny things. And so getting to do that in a competitive environment was, I think, probably very uncommon. (laughs) And certainly very important to me. And I, in hindsight, I think that also equipped me with just, you know, practice. I mean, they, they say that you need like whatever it is, 40,000 hours, 4,000 hours. I don't even yeah. remember, but like X number of hours to become an expert at a skill. And I think spending the four years of high school arranging flowers and making scrapbooks truly developed a set of skills with my hands that... I have definitely carried with me. And I, to this day, I'll be on site at a wedding and something will happen or, you know, something will break and I can fix it in a minute. And I think, oh, Mrs. Evans, shout out to Mrs. Evans. Love her. We're still friends. Oh my gosh. I love love, Especially because it kind of, this blossomed out of like 
a class that you kind of got into by mistake. Totally Um, by mistake. You know, and we had another um, interview guest that called an event similar to that in nature. She called it a God shot. Uh, Certain things just kind of sometimes they seem like a mistake. You don't understand them, but just certain things happen that kind of get you into the presence of opportunity. And I, I, like I, just, I love visualizing you as, you know, a high schooler, just just getting really, you know, electrified by these competitions because y- you kind of think that I feel like the artsy kids in school, sometimes they get a rap for maybe being a little bit more like introverted or shy, mm-hmm. slow and not really competitive and, you know, just a little to themselves. And it's like, who says that you can't be artistic, but also extroverted or mm-hmm. artistic and also competitive? You know, that it's like, I love, I love that your school had these competitions and these events. Like I've never heard of a like competitive flower arranging or competitive scrapbooking, but it's great because it's like in everything that you do, there is an opportunity to like, you know, whether you're competing with others or just yourself, but just having that, that mindset of like, I'm going to do this the best way that I can. um, You can really apply that to literally anything. So I love how it just kind of you grasped onto these things so early in your life, but in a way that isn't, isn't stereotypical. when Mm -hmm. people think about um, young people that are into more crafty, artsy types of things. I really love, I wish that I went to your school and also for the record had you as a best friend growing up because this (laughs) is like, I'm like, I don't, I don't know if you can see my face, but I literally like had to like pick my jaw up off the ground because I'm like, oh, this is like, I love this. And also, I love miniature stuff. Me too. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Miniatures are the best. So, That's my mom, too. Like, it's, so, a, it's a gene. Like, I just love for little... little honestly, I mean, those hamsters that eat the tiny burritos, like, that's like... Those are, like, <laughs> the types of things that, like, stop yeah. me in my tracks. Just Teeny, so tiny. Just so cute. Just There's so, something so cute about little yeah. things. It feels yeah, good. Yeah. Well, I, I can tell you, we wouldn't have been best friends in high school because I didn't have friends in high school. I was a a nerd beyond nerds. I had a back brace for scoliosis. I had glasses, but at the time that was when transition lenses first came out. So it would transition from indoors to sunglasses when you walked outdoors, but they didn't really transition. They kind of just stayed yellow. And I thought it would be cool to have big cat eyes like the 50s. So I had these really weird glasses and this back brace and a rolling backpack. I was the opposite of popular. So I literally ate, my best friend in high school was Mrs. Evans, which again, she's just going to get all, I'm going to have to send her a link to this podcast. She's going to be like, oh, Carrie, you're my favorite We'll have to reach out to her. We'll have to reach out to her. Yeah. And thank her. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yes. What I love too is how, you know, by not fitting yourself into these boxes, by not categorizing yourself as any one thing and just, you know, Maybe at first inadvertently going with the flow, you know, being too afraid to to go in and, and switch your class. It really was like, you know, stringing the bow for your mm-hmm. whole path, which is so cool. And I also really, you know, I'm interested very much by how I believe in the past you've described yourself as a little bit more quiet and introverted, but you were so taken by competitive public speaking. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something really interesting about that dichotomy because, you know, at first glance, you'd think those two don't fit in the same room. 
But yeah, I think that there there has to be something to you being able to sort of like be in a controlled space and speak and like do it competitively and like create, you know, this this forum for yourself to be extroverted when you are ready for it or when you want to be. I really like that tidbit there. Yeah, I think I'm definitely like the quintessential extroverted introvert. When you put me in a room with people, I will turn on like a little firefly and I'll buzz around the room and introduce myself to everybody and introduce everybody else to everybody and try and make a bunch of connections and then quickly get out of there (laughs) and go sit quietly by myself and just hermit. And as I'm getting older and really settling into the adult phase of life, I'm realizing how much I really love alone time. And I really love the like the comforts of being home and just like surrounded by things that I'm super familiar with. And my girlfriends now joke that like, if you want to see me, you have to come to me. I'm not like, I'm not going to leave and go meet you at a restaurant, but I'll totally have you out here. I would love to have you come over and hang out. But no, I'm not. I don't want to go into public and be surrounded by a bunch of people because then I'm going to have to turn on yeah. and, and you know, entertain the show. My parents told me that one time in preschool, my preschool teacher said, Carrie, you're not eating your lunch. And I said, somebody has to entertain them. Like, that was the priority was to make sure that everybody else had something to listen to while they were enjoying their meal. And maybe I'll eat later. It makes sense, though, given your, you know, childhood with your parents, just that that innate need to make sure that everyone's OK and to, to share this love that, like, I feel like it just spills out of you. Um, so that's that's I'm actually not surprised by that. <laughs> What was like, what was high school graduation like for you? And what, what were you kind of thinking about at that time? So because I was super involved in the Future Farmers of America, FFA, as it's called, I got really, throughout the process of high school, I got really interested in running for office. So like, think of it as like, you know, you have a school ASB or whatever you call that. Um, And I loved doing all of those things. I was in I was in school student body. I was always in charge of the dances. Shocking. Not surprised. Um, And simultaneously, the FFA program had all of these opportunities for you to run for office. So there was, you know, your local high school office. And then there was like what they called section, which was the, you know, the nearest like five high schools and then region, which was like there were five of them in the state of California and then state office. And I ran for each of those and got elected to each of those and really enjoyed that process. And then as a senior in high school, I ran for state FFA office and got elected, which meant that I was going to take a year off between high school and college to serve as a state officer, which essentially was working as an intern for the Department of Education. And there were six of us. And so literally, I graduated from high school on a Friday and moved to Sacramento on a Saturday to begin my term as a state FFA officer. So I deferred college for a year, and instead, my teammates and I taught leadership conferences to high school kids. And so we were on the road 280 days out of that year. We would go to a different high school every single day that has an FFA program, and we would essentially take over their classes for the day. And instead of teaching, like, things in the science curriculum, we would do leadership conferences. And we had, like, three or four of them that we'd written and and we would rotate them throughout the day, depending on like what class it was and what age the students were. Um, so I, at that point, was very focused on 
this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is supposed to be my life. This organization was not just super fun to be a part of, but like I'm like borderline obsessed with with it, with the people in it, with what it does, with the career development that it provides. I love that it was mostly about like vocational training instead of educational training. There's a, obviously there's a place for both, but I think and especially in the early 2000s, that was like right when the No Child Left Behind stuff was coming out for education, which mm-hmm. on paper sounds fantastic. Mm-hmm. But the reality of all of those initiatives was to cut vocational training from schools to really focus on just traditional book learning, STEM-based learning, and not at all career preparedness. So the thought of teaching somebody welding was like frowned upon at that time. And all I could think was, no, this is like so much cooler to have skills with your hands, things you can actually physically do. I can't believe we're not prioritizing this. And so when the opportunity to run for state office came, I could not have been more excited about that. Ran, got elected, and then spent that whole year so deeply involved in the other side of the organization, like the production side instead of the recipient side, that I think that really was a really unique opportunity, a super incredible opportunity. It also gave me some lifetime best friends because the the process of selecting who those six students gets to be is really interesting. And, so, and there's like a lot of personality testing. And so the people that I served on that team with are to this day some of my very best friends because we just, we mesh really well together. Like we were literally handpicked to be together for a year, all the time for a year. So that really was a very different transition from high school to college because there it was a whole gap year but it wasn't a gap year of like oh I'm gonna go backpack through Europe and like be a a young adult you know growing teenager instead it was I'm gonna jump into a pseudo adult role immediately and then I'm gonna backtrack and do the college thing so it was this like really interesting level of responsibility and also self-prescribed responsibility to to be a role model to be Pollyanna perfect you know that you're one of six people and you're supposed to be teaching students who were really only a year younger than you so if you think about it like that's weird that's like super weird but I took it very very seriously and and was pretty rigid about it and then when I finally did like that ended and I went to college I went in with an ag education major with the intention of I'm going to be a high school ag science teacher. Like this is, this organization, FFA, is going to be my whole life, my whole career. And then obviously that is not how that ended up. (laughs) Um, Go to college. Chico State. Yeah. At the time, I I shouldn't say at the time, I think they still are. It's the best program in the country for ag education. So like if you want to be a high school ag science teacher, this is where you come to go to school. We just have some really incredible professors who not only study the art of teaching, but the art of learning and how your brain grasps information and that there's different ways to teach. And one of them is lecturing. And that's what 99% of the world has determined is how we educate students. That's not a very effective method. Self-discovery is the single best way to learn something is to get to that conclusion on your own. And so that's what I went to college to learn how to do, was to learn how to guide people to their own self-discovery of whatever the knowledge in the textbook is that you're supposed to be teaching, which was 
really cool, really incredible. The way that the human brain works is insane. My um, my head's swimming here because I can see, I mean, there's definitely a theme that start we start off with right out of the gates of your interview, which is, you know, this very cool foundation that your parents created for you. And this thread keeps being carried on through, but I also I'm really excited because I'm starting to hear like some of the foundational aspects of what will later become your business and how you work mm-hmm. with clients and how you extract these these moments and sentiments that are so personal to them. And I think that that will, you know, my my hypothesis is, is that that's <laughs> where you're really, really successful. I also I think it's you know, there is something to be said when you brought up welding and the way that people learn information I think this is really significant for some of our listeners to hold on to because we live in a very structured society right now Mm -hmm. in that like you go to school, there's a pipeline, then you go to college and everything's supposed to look and feel a certain way. You have standardized testing still. But I, I really do. I think that you're so spot on in that like if you have the opportunities to do something like welding or floristry, even if your school doesn't offer it. You know, there's there's really something to be said about working with your hands and learning how to solve problems outside of a, of a typical educational structure. I think that's where mm-hmm. we learn like adaptability and like that that creative edge to being able to problem solve and learn without, you know, having to fit into that one very specific box that society tells us we have to fit into. Yeah, you know, there's also a lot of joy to be found in mm-hmm. practical skills. When something goes wrong with my computer, I have a panic attack because I don't know how to fix it. When something goes wrong with a piece of machinery in the shop, I get excited because we can figure that out. I can fix that. I can tinker with it. I can figure out how it moves, where it's going wrong, what's not connecting, whatever the issue is, and fix it with my hands. And the sense of pride that comes from having tangibly done something instead of technologically done something is it's a very different endorphin boost of like yay I fixed it now I can go back to whatever it is that I'm doing I'm probably the biggest advocate you'll ever meet for like skill-based learning vocational Mm -hmm. training learn to do stuff with your hands and with your body because it makes you feel good it and it's also really really handy like you never know when you're going to be in a, a situation where you know, the pipe burst in your house and you can mm-hmm. call a plumber and wait three days or you can get under there with a wrench and figure it out and you're going to feel really good about yourself when you do. It's like a level of autonomy. I think it gives you a sense of freedom that you can, you know, everything for the most part, everything is figure outable. Yes. Except for technology stuff. Technology to me does not feel figure outable. I'm like, I don't, I could not tell you if something happened with my computer, I would have no idea what screw to tighten. Like there's, that's a whole different thing. It just doesn't come with the same satisfaction level of a job well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, you you mentioned the the word like problem solving. And it's funny because I, I think that our, our generation, like we've heard the words problem solving since we were in like first grade. Like it's something they're constantly testing for. They want to see like your problem solving skills. But it kind of, I think from hearing it over and over, it can kind of get, you know, it's like, oh, pro- uh, yeah, I got to work on my problem solving. But really, it's mm-hmm. like, no, there, there is a level of autonomy and satisfaction that comes from really being able to find that thing that you can problem solve. Because it involves you having to make a choice 
mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, you're going in to fix something. You have to make choices. It's like, well, there are all these different things that could be. I think it's this one. And so I'm going to do this. And I think that unfortunately, you know, with all of the ease of technology and, you know, the interconnected world that we live in, a lot of those choices are kind of being taken away from us. You know, even yeah. like you see, like I, I'm not on TikTok, you know, and a lot of the, I, you know, I am on some social media stuff and like, you know, your discover page and stuff like people are they're They're like, oh, because of this, this and this about you, we're going to f- feed you what you, we think you want next. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, OK, that's fair. So the choice of what you see next, the choice of the ad that you see, the choice of all these different things are being kind of made for us, which makes life easier in some ways. But I think that happiness, you know, comes with the ability to make choices, you know, and the Mm -hmm. slight little risk that comes with like making, making choices. I love your point about, about problem solving and just your passion for tangible skills with your hands. Yeah. Keish also made this great point about uh, the way that you, you work with your clients now. And I distinctly remember, you know, when we first connected, it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to run down my services and this is what it costs and this is the package and this is what we're due. It was like, not a business owner, <laughs> not a business owner. <laughs> right? I mean, and, and that's the thing. It's like, okay, you want to pair some, I'm sure throughout many, many projects, you're like, all right, things work better if I set up this contract this way or I set up this, you know, whatever. you learn things over the way so you can keep your business going. But we just sat down and had a conversation, you know, and I felt so seen by that. But I also think that in that in that approach, you were kind of guiding me through like, you know, sharing like, OK, what are like the the symbols and the things and in our relationship in this moment? Like, why did we choose this venue? Why did we do these things? And and what do I want like my guests to know about our relationship as I like walk down the aisle? It was really like a self-discovery process that you were just kind of you were along on that that process with me and and um, yeah thanks for you I, I think a lot of what we see in weddings which are now constantly being shoved down our throats on social media and we're inundated with imagery and and like pinterest mood boards have gone into a whole new place we're constantly told your wedding needs to have your personality and the way to do that is to have you know a watercolor picture of your dog on your cocktail napkins or whatever You know, and it's this like really surface level stuff of like, oh, you know, the groom likes to golf. Great. Then we'll do little, you know, golf balls as the party favors or whatever. And it's, that's fine. And does that touch on a person's personality? Yes. Is that going to leave a lasting impression on a guest or a family member? No, that's just stuff for the sake of stuff and pretty for the sake of pretty. And I mean, I was going to say like no shade, but also the industry doesn't care if I throw shade because clearly... That part of the industry is thriving. I'd say that there are hundreds of thousands of weddings that have surface level personality and are very happy with that. And that's great. But I think that's also because they don't know that there is an alternative, which is deeper level personality driven events, deeper level meaning and intention into their wedding day. And for me, it it became a, a really intense sticking point when I got married, when I met my husband and realized like, oh, this is what this is supposed to feel like. Like I've always idolized the concept of marriage and the idea of soulmates, but experiencing it myself was so much better than what I ever could have imagined that that changed everything for me. I was like, cool, not interested in the surface level stuff anymore. Like now that I know what it really feels like to be madly obsessively in love and to have an event 
that is solely based around how obsessed my husband and I are with each other to the point that we want to spend the rest of eternity together and we're going to invite our friends and family from all over the country. Like the thought of then doing something pretty or surface level felt silly. It felt disingenuous. It felt like a waste of time and energy and money. And instead, it really became an opportunity to test some new theories and and to say, you know, like, how do we really infuse us, infuse our lives prior to meeting each other and our lives moving forward? Like, it's not just about the wedding. It's more about the marriage. Where are we headed as a couple and as a relationship into the future? And how do these people that we've invited to our celebration fit into that? Like, yes, they were a part of our past, but the more important thing is what role are they going to play in our marriage, in our future lives together? And that really is what made me start diving way, way deeper into getting to know the couple's personality and then letting that turn into touch points instead of saying, hey, listen, we need to have, you know, menus and table numbers. Why don't you tell me three cool things about you? And I'll force feed those little personality snippets into these menus and table numbers. Instead, it's let's look at this whole thing completely opposite. Why don't you tell me everything about you guys? Tell me everything. Tell me all the surface level stuff. That's a great place to warm up. Oh, you like going to the movies and traveling? Cool. So does every other person in the world. That's not the kind of stuff I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is when did you know this was your person? You know, like, what are the things that you're most excited about in your marriage coming up? Like, where are your values and priorities going to be there? And over the course of these conversations with clients, you get to know them pretty well. And little pieces slip out, not with the intention of, oh, we should incorporate this into the wedding, but just little parts and pieces of their hearts, you know? And and I glean those out of these conversations and I write them down on my notepad. And then I have a pretty bizarre creative process. You're not going to be surprised by this either. I take those notes and I go sit somewhere in the middle of nature with no cell service and I meditate on that couple and on their relationship and on these little bits and pieces of their lives that they've shared with me. And then I just sit back and wait to start receiving ideas from the universe. And the pieces of the relationship translate into, oh, this would be a fun way to incorporate that into the wedding instead of the opposite of force feeding it into a deliverable. The deliverables are derived from the storytelling. And a a term that I cannot take credit for inventing, um, nor can I, of course, remember the author who did say it, but it was rewarding the careful observer. And so a lot of what you'll see me incorporate at a wedding goes way over the head of 99% of the guests that are there. But the 1% of the guests that do catch it, that do pick it up and say, oh, I see you. I see why you chose this as the garnish pick in your cocktail or whatever. It's because I know this story behind this. And it's rewarding that careful observer, planting those little Easter eggs of your relationship throughout your wedding that really make it special and take it from being a personalized wedding to truly your experience and your day. Because, I mean, weddings in general are a little wild, right? Like, Mm -hmm. let's just call it like it is. It's a party. Mm -hmm. It's a luxury. It's not a necessity. It's not a right. Marriage is a right, but a wedding is a choice. Um, And I think that the choice of having a party to show off how pretty you can make things or the choice of having a party to honor your relationship and the relationship that you have with the people you've invited to this party is 
that's not even the same thing. We're not even comparing apples and oranges. We're comparing like apples and, you know, guava melons or something like totally. It's even that's in the fruit family. Pumpkins. I, pick something else. Yeah. I, I'd say you're the guava because that's my favorite fruit. Thanks. But <laughs> I, I really like how you're drawing out this dreamscape for us because, you you know, especially in today's world, everything's online. Like, basically, mm-hmm. we live in the matrix. And so what I am hearing from you is this really cool way of living and breathing your art and your creativity that, you know, takes you out of that. And it's it's really cool that that's still possible. I also, you know, I think that you hear a lot of people talk about marriage as an institution. And what I'm hearing from you is that there's this sacred tradition of celebrating love. And what you're Mm -hmm. doing is you're really preserving that. And you're not just helping people create these pretty moments, as you said, but you're, you're letting them create these events where they can let the people they love and want to be in their future into their stories, like Mm -hmm. an immersive experience. And I really felt that with Asha and Andrew's wedding. It wasn't just like, oh, we're here and we're having a big party. It was like, wow, this is like, this is like the cookie trail of your love. And this is like how it all culminates. So cool. So it's going to be interesting to see how that transitions over the next couple decades, I think, with people who were born with parents who had access to social media and mm-hmm. like their whole childhood has been documented, right? And their whole adolescence is being documented by themselves now. And like they had access to the internet their the whole their whole life and have had access to social media their whole life. I think that's mm-hmm. really gonna be interesting when these when this next little micro generation comes of age to start getting married, how they choose to celebrate that. And if it's the selfie show with the like, it's all about the photos. I want an Instagram wall. I want a big backdrop where everybody can take pictures and use our wedding hashtag. Or if there's going to be almost like a backlash to that and instead say, no, I want an off the grid experience. Mm -hmm. I want something that is not documented, that doesn't have these like big showy moments that instead is just about having an offline experience based around human connection and love. I'm like, fingers crossed over here. Please let it be yes. that direction that we that we transition as a society. But the verdict's still out. So it's going to be a real interesting next decade to see how this all pivots. And if I'm this rare unicorn blip on the radar who's here now and gone in 10 years, or if this is, you know, where people decide to change and transition their values and priorities to. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm hopeful. Me too. Not mm-hmm. certain, but I'm hopeful. So you cite a lot of your inspiration and your entire business really on your own love story and your marriage. And it's so fun going to your website and looking at how you present yourself in your work. And a lot of the photos I notice are actually of your own wedding. Can you dive into that a little bit more, like sort of the creative process behind getting like the idea emporium started. And I know you say you're not a business owner, but how you've been able to create the idea emporium, you know, out of this beautiful world that you live in. Well, so it started before I met my husband. It's, it actually started, I was waiting tables in a restaurant 
And one of my coworkers said, hey, you're, we were standing at the toaster. It was a breakfast restaurant. And she goes, hey, you're super creative. I said, yes. She goes, and you're really uptight. And I said, rude, but also yes. She goes, I feel like being creative and being really uptight would make you a good fit for weddings. I'm engaged. Will you help me with my wedding? And I was like, what? What? She goes, yeah, I just, you know, we have to do it in our family's backyard and like we're making all the things ourselves and I'm just feeling really overwhelmed. And I was like, what do you mean? You don't want to make all those things yourself? She goes, no, you weirdo. I don't want to make anything. And I was like, oh, I'll do the crafting. Okay. And so, and she had a carnival themed wedding. Her whole all in budget, including food, booze, everything was $7,000 for the whole wedding. We made it happen. It was so much fun. I spent months sewing these like pennants to string over the the lawn and we made our own jam for favors and jarred it and made cute little labels that I think I printed it probably like staples. Like it was it was very much a homemade done wedding. And at the end of it, she and her husband came up to me and said, "So, you should be doing this for a living. Like this is 100% the industry that you're supposed to be in. And mind you, I'd already been doing flowers for weddings for people as favors for years. And it had never really occurred to me that that was a viable option because to me, why would you pay someone to do the fun part for you? When Well, apparently that's not fun for everyone. That's only fun for those of us who really like to make stuff with our hands. And I'm one of those. And so that kind of started it. And then a few weeks later, I was at my other job. I was bartending. And this random customer at the bar was talking to her fiance about how they had just gotten engaged and she didn't know what to do for her wedding. And I said, oh, I'm a wedding planner, (laughs) which I was not. I just blurted it out. And she said, really? And I said, yeah, I'll cut you a deal because you'll be one of my first customers. And I, in (laughs) hindsight, that's like so inappropriate. But they paid me $600 to plan their wedding. I made paper flowers because we didn't have a floral budget. I made paper origami flowers for months and months and months leading up to the wedding. It was in their backyard and it was so much fun, so much fun that I was like, okay, maybe I am going to be a wedding planner. So then I took out a booth at the local bridal fair that next summer and touted myself as a wedding planner. And I planned probably five or six weddings and then decided, wow, being a planner is not very much fun, but making the stuff is really fun. So it it then transitioned from, no, I'm not a planner. I'm now a florist slash crafter. And then it became, no, I'm a crafter slash stationer. And the first client who asked me to make their wedding invitations, and mind you, I didn't have a degree in graphic design. I literally downloaded free software called Pixelmator. And then hard cried when the printer that I sent it to said, this file is a disaster. What software are you using? This is a joke. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm making it up as I go along. But I realized, wow, the stationary design is actually really fun. So then the business transitioned to, I'm a stationer. And then stationary felt too small. So over the years, it grew. So it's like it started as planning and then it got smaller and smaller into details. And then it the details were too small, so they got a little bit bigger and it expanded into stationary and design, which is very ambiguous. And now it has really kind of settled into details. I tell people I make anything smaller than a bread box. 
I'm not going to build you a structure for your wedding, a tent. There's specialized companies that do that. I'm not going to build giant walls for your escort cards. I'm going to make all the things that are little, that are special and customized just for you, that are not rented items, that are purchased items, because they're either going to get consumed or enjoyed or taken by your guests. And it kind of, it got to that point where I was like, okay, this is, this is my little niche of the industries. I make the small stuff. And then I met my husband and everybody asks, how'd you meet? And the answer is the internet. We're one of those people. It works if you try. And I was smitten with him and he was smitten with me. Our first date was phenomenal. And then we went on 27 dates in a row every single day until he had to go to Ireland to pick up his sister from grad school. And when he came back, he came back with the term girlfriend. This is my girlfriend. And I was like, yep, yep, I am. (laughs) Um, And he is the most perfect fit, I think, that anyone has ever experienced in a relationship. Like, I think there's a very popular analogy that, like, when you find your person, it's like finding a puzzle piece, right? And that doesn't fit, that doesn't work for us because a puzzle piece only fits on one side. I think of myself as more like I'm an island and he's the ocean. And as I evolve, he moves to meet me where I am. And as the tide goes out, so does the sand. And we're constantly ebbing and flowing to be a perfect fit on all sides for each other, not just this one like a puzzle piece. People get like, our friends are like grossed out by us. Like we're, we're those people that are like so obsessed with each other that it's, ridiculous. All of his coworkers think that my name is Sweetheart because we talk on the phone like five times a day while he's at work and it's, oh, hi, Sweetheart, what are you doing? <laughs> um, they, like, they've never heard him use my real name. And in fact, when he does use my real name, I get upset. I'm like, what, what did I do wrong? Why am I in trouble? He's like, oh, no, I just was trying to get your attention. <laughs> but yeah, he, he is the most incredible partner that I've ever experienced or witnessed or seen in a fairy tale or a story. He just is so kind, 24 hours a day, supportive, 24 hours a day, and loving 24 hours a day. And nothing else matters. Like those three character traits in a human are, that's like the trifecta of perfection. Like we are happy in our marriage every single day. And we treat our marriage as a living, breathing entity. And neither of us really talked about that until it just sort of started to happen. He's probably, he'll never listen to this podcast because I won't let him because I don't want to embarrass him. But he asks me probably once a month, how's our marriage doing? What can I do to make our marriage better for you? And I'm like, man, you are so good to me. You're just, he's the best. He's so supportive and so hands-on and also emotionally attentive to me and to what I need and and how I'm feeling at any given moment that it's kind of mind-blowing. And I feel like I must have done something really great in the last couple lives to have earned this one with him because he is truly spectacular. So when it got time to plan our wedding, right? I was like, all right, here comes my magnum opus. Let's let's <laughs> dance. Let's do this. And I decided from the get-go that every single thing in our wedding was going to have an intention and a reason behind it. We were not picking a single detail because it was pretty or cool or popular or cute or exciting. 
if it didn't have a story behind it, if it didn't have a reason behind it, it was not going to show up at our wedding day. And I took that as a like a very serious challenge that then turned out to be not much of a challenge at all. Once you kind of get into that flow, it came really pretty easily. And so I started by just kind of journaling and brainstorming what are some of the key touch points in our story and in our relationship. And fortunately, because he is such a great person, I had plenty of stories to choose from. One of my favorites is early in our relationship, we were dating. We were boyfriend, girlfriend at the time, but like we were not like living together, anything too serious. And so I was still getting to know all of his friends and where we live, it gets really hot. And so, and we have a river, the Sacramento River flows right through Chico. So um, a very popular weekend activity is to go floating. And you float the Sacramento River and then there's this spot that you get out and everybody like hangs out on this beach area. And we all floated our tubes down and all of his friends got up and started drinking and hanging out. And I walked over to the edge of the river and started making little stacks of rocks because I'm an extroverted introvert and I'd been doing the extrovert thing, the whole float. And I was like, oof, I got to take a little introvert time over here. So I started making little rock stacks. And one of his friends came over. Sorry, Kevin, you're not going to look like a good guy in this story. And said, Carrie, why are you so weird? And he kicked over my rock stack. And I looked at him like, are you seriously a 30-year-old bully? Like, is this a real thing that's happening? And Eric came over, my husband came over and defended me. And as a person who's always been a little bit offbeat, a little bit weird, I've been made fun of off and on my whole life. Like, that's nothing new. There's always been some bully who says, why are you so weird? Why do you dress like that? Why do you eat like that? Why do you, whatever. I've constantly had really well-intentioned people want to defend the little guy. Lots of people want to defend the little guy and say, hey, you know, that's not nice. But what Eric did that no other person has ever done before was came over and defended me and said, she can be weird if she wants to be weird. But then he sat down and he joined me in my weirdness. He chose to ignore what everybody else was doing, which was the popular choice, which was hanging out, socializing, having a beer, and instead came and sat down with me and made rock stacks with me. And I thought in that exact moment, oh my God, you're my person. You just joined me in my weirdness over the safety and comfort of fitting in with your own friends or over just the ease of being the good guy who defends me, but then goes back to the party. Like, that you actively chose to be with me in my comfort level instead of your comfort level was this light bulb moment of, I'm going to marry this one. Like, this is, this is what it means to have a partner. So at our wedding down the table, we had stacks of river rocks, little tiny stacks between every place setting, between every votive candle. And I gathered every single one of those rocks from our river, <laughs> buckets and buckets full of rocks. It took a long time and a lot of muscle strength. Um, and most of the guests didn't understand it. Most of the guests saw the rocks and were like, ah, oh, that's a weird artistic choice, but okay. But the people who knew that story were like, oh, yep, I was there. I was there the day that Carrie's light bulb went off and that Eric defended her and joined her in this rock stacking. And now that's a thing that we do all the time together, not because we're reliving that moment, but because it's just an authentic enjoyment. And it's got this great story behind it of one of those 
original memories of our, the early days of our relationship. And so that was really, that was from a wedding standpoint, like a quintessential example of this is what it's supposed to be. Storytelling details, not just pretty details. Yeah. Um, So that was great. I think um, for anyone listening, you actually have a very, very cool video of this on your website landing page. And I was going to tell you that one of my favorite parts of your wedding was this incredible like die cut floral backdrop that you had behind one of the tables. Like, And when you first look at the, the video, you I didn't even realize the first time I looked at it that it was all paper. But when you watch the video, you see your process and it's just so meticulous and so beautiful. And then you get to the photographs and now listening to you tell this story, you actually have photographs of your tables with your stacks of rocks, your little cairns, like, and some of them are under the cloches and some of them are, but I really feel what you're talking about. And um, I think that that's something very special because, you know, you, you've had so many different iterations of events and things that you've created for other people. And I think for anyone listening, hearing you tell tell your process of doing this for yourself and your husband in in celebration of your love and mm-hmm. that love story, that's really what makes the idea Emporium so different and so special. And really, you know, everything that you talk about, like you really, you walk the talk, like everything <laughs> that you've written down, it's like a very real thing which is so cool thanks yeah I'd like to think that I I strive to be a very intentional person Mm -hmm. I want everything in my life to be specifically chosen not just random happenstance and that extends into my work that extends into my marriage it's funny that you mentioned the the floral installation the paper flower installation Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things of once I got into the wedding industry was learning about all of these different traditions and omens and blessings. And there's, uh, you know, millions of cultures on the planet, right? And every single one of them, to an extent, has something that they do that commemorates a marriage, that commemorates two people choosing to be together. And I decided we're going to take them all. We're going to use every single one of them that feels meaningful and special to us. So we had an Irish ring blessing and we, you know, we did all the things. And one of the things that I was the most um, fascinated by was the tradition of a bride making a thousand paper cranes for her own wedding, because it's like a meditative practice of folding the origami. And a thousand is a a very intimidating number. It takes a long time to fold a thousand paper cranes. Um, And I decided, you know, I want my own version of that. And so that to me was this paper flower installation was a thousand paper flowers. I printed them in like a gradation from black to light, 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 light gray. And then we strung, I laser cut them all and strung them on fishing lines. So from the guest perspective, it felt like you were sitting in like a paper garden that was just floating over the ground. But the reality was it was a decor piece. Yes. But really it was more the meditative practice for me of getting to spend months in preparation for this day in meditation, in in practice of thinking about the marriage, thinking about our future, thinking about what I wanted to be like as a wife, as a spouse, as a partner. That was the function behind the paper flowers because that's the function behind the paper cranes. 
but the visual was also pretty, pretty dang cool. There was actually a piece of the visual that didn't work. So maybe we'll see that at my vow renewal someday. But I was trying to figure out how to live my, you know, my 80s kid fantasies of like getting married in a magical fairy garden. And I was trying so hard to figure out how to rig a drip system under the chairs for dry ice (laughs) that would have like, you would walk into the room and it would be plain. And then once you sat down, you'd realize that this like mysterious fog was growing from under your feet. But you can't use a smoke machine because that doesn't give you that good ground hanging fog. Yeah. So still got to figure out the mechanics on that one. Eventually it'll happen though. So very cool. I wanted to also go into, you know, one of the things that happened a little bit more recently. In my memory, I think it was probably a little bit before the pandemic, but you have all of your own equipment. You know, everything that you use and create is something that you specifically carry are creating with your hands and with your your equipment at home at your home studio. I remember a couple years back, you actually went through something pretty devastating that you shared with your social media audience. And, you know, at the time, I remember watching it thinking, wow, it just seems so the loss is so insurmountable. Like, how do you grow from this and and rebuild? And I think, you know, I'm talking about the fires. Do you can you share a little bit about what a setback (laughs) like that is like as a business owner and as an artist and how you rebuilt and have really like, you know, now if you were to look at your page, you would never know that you went through something so huge unless you had, you know, been following for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So 2018, our house burned down and my business burned down and my community burned down. It was the fire that took out the whole town of Paradise and surrounding areas. And we live in these surrounding areas. And what most people, when they hear, oh, you had a fire, they picture like a blackened structure with lots of debris inside. This was not that. This was to the ground. So there was nothing but a pile of ash left. We lost quite literally every single thing we've ever owned, with the exception of the five things that I grabbed when I frantically ran out of the house. And that was the cat, (laughs) our wedding memory box, my husband's memory box his dad's portrait and my dad's letters because both of our we both lost our dads to cancer so that was mm-hmm. that was always like the priority if an emergency happens grab these things list and i did the process of losing your home is very sad because you lose photographs you lose high school yearbooks you lose letters and so the morning of losing a home is really sad. I would say it's it's painful, but it's not like the same kind of pain like when a person dies. There's nothing more painful than that. But this is probably, my house burning down is probably the saddest thing that I've ever experienced because you know that those items are never, ever going to be replaced. And while people say, yes, but you still have the memory of that, right? you don't have that thing that's sitting there that you think, oh, I bought that on our honeymoon. Man, wasn't that a great time? There's no visual stimulus to reactivate those memories. And so the memories still exist, but they get fainter and fainter and fainter and fainter. Conversely, your business burning down is the absolute most difficult thing that I have ever experienced. It was anger-inducing. It was it made me feel a lot of rage. I'd never felt rage before in my entire life because 
that's a function-based object. So I'm not missing it and mourning it and sad about it. I'm instead reaching for it, going to use it, and then realizing it's not there, and then getting angry that I have to stop whatever it is I'm doing and go buy a new thing. Because the things the things that I would reach for that weren't there anymore were not important. It would be, you know, scissors or a toothpick to scratch into some clay or whatever silly little tool. So it was infuriating to be reminded of the loss hundreds of times a day with these little tiny mm-hmm. micro decisions and micro moments and micro items that you reach for because your brain hasn't yet processed that you don't have those anymore. I mean, I will say we were 60,000 people lost their homes in that fire. Mm-hmm. And I think that my husband and I were probably the two luckiest people in the whole thing. Before we bought our house, we had lived in a rental apartment on the Sacramento River that was um, owned by an elderly couple who lived next door. It was like their guest house. And that apartment had gone back on the market for rent on November 4th. The fire was November 8th. And by November 10th, the news had reported that it had, the fire had spread outside the town of Paradise proper and into surrounding areas. And the landlord's said, oh my God, Eric and Carrie are going to need to come back. And they pulled that listing and saved the apartment for us. So then a few days later, when I called and said, I heard a rumor that the river apartment might be available. They said, yeah, we saved it for you. So on a day when 60,000 people were desperate for an apartment, desperate for a place to rent or to buy, getting into fights in real estate offices and, you know, offering triple whatever the asking price was sight unseen because we were all 60,000 people suddenly homeless is a really big transition. And the housing market in any community is not equipped to handle that. And so Mm -hmm. on a day when everyone was scrambling, we had a place to go that was not just available, but comfortable and familiar. And I, I give our landlords at that rental apartment a lot of credit for my emotional recovery, getting like a step up. Because the other alternatives that we were offered or that had been made available to us were <laughs> not quite as uh, healing focused. The The place that we were about to move into before we found out that the river was available was actually an apartment over a storefront that did not have electricity. And I was like, well, at least it's shelter. Like that's the level of desperation that this whole community is at right now. So we moved into the house at the river or the apartment at the river and then began the process of deciding what to do. And it took us about a year to decide if we wanted to stay or relocate, you know, because there's literally nothing holding you back. Like a lot of times you'll think like, oh, we could move to Europe, but the thought of getting all our stuff across the ocean feels too dramatic. Well, we all of a sudden didn't have any stuff. We had literally nothing. And so we thought about, you know, do we want to relocate? Do we want to stay where we are? And we eventually decided that paper, that kind of stuff. Um, And so while I was trying to decide what to do, the universe answered the question for me. Two things happened simultaneously. The first was the luxury wedding industry has a, a conference that we all go to, and they decided to do a GoFundMe for me. I very specifically did not want that. I was embarrassed by that. I didn't you know, I didn't want to ask for help or a handout. And they said, yeah, we're we're going to ignore those wishes. You're going to need it and we're going to do it for you anyway. And so they did this like massive fundraising effort for me, which was so overwhelmingly generous and supportive and just gave me this feeling of like the industry wants you to come back from this. We want you to come back to us. 
And so that was wonderful. And then the other thing that happened that was really the deciding factor was all my stationary girlfriends got together on their own without me and basically made a spreadsheet, like a Google sheet of tools and supplies that they knew I was going to need that were not like, it's easy to replace the big ticket items, right? Like the, the letterpress printing equipment. What people don't think about is all of those teeny tiny little pieces. And all of my stationary girlfriends thought about the teeny tiny pieces. So I started getting packages in the mail from quite literally all over the world with hand tools, with hole punches and bone folders and specialty scissors and corner rounders and all of the little tiny things that go into making. And that felt so overwhelmingly supportive and generous and and authentically building that I was like, okay, well, I guess that's my answer. I'm supposed to rebuild. So it took me 18 months to repurchase and refine and re, you know, collect and gather the the bulk of what I needed to physically be able to operate, right? So like the letterpress, the laser cutter, the sewing machine, the computers, the printers, the all of the stuff and things. And then I mean, <laughs> this is where the timing gets a little unfortunate. So it took a year and a half to do that, 18 months. The first project that I made were these, I called them rebirthing boxes. It was a, mm-hmm. a gift box that I was going to send out to a bunch of planners that basically said like, hey, I'm ready. I'm reopened for business. Send me weddings. Let's make some magic together. I gave everybody a, um, a specialized set of Palo Santo sticks and I this was before I knew that you're not supposed to use Palo Santo because it's endangered. And I'd like laser engraved them with keywords that like Palo Santo is supposed to bring into your energy field. And like, this is what I want this next chapter of my business to be about. And I mailed those out. And then 10 days later, COVID hit. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. What do you mean we're not going to have any weddings for a year? What is happening here? So the whole wedding industry shut down for a year and a half. And everybody was upset that they were out of work for a year and a half. And I just couldn't stop laughing. I was like, oh, that's so cute. A year and a half. Come talk to me. I'm now on three years. What is going on here? And then that kind of opened up this whole, essentially like a midlife crisis of what am I doing? What is the purpose behind what I'm doing? Is it worth it? Should we stay? Should we rebuild? Should we, should I close shop and go do something else? Should I get a job at McDonald's for 16 bucks an hour? Like, what am I supposed to be doing at this juncture in my life? And the overwhelming support that was, I wouldn't even say given to me, that was kind of forced on me. It was like, we're going to help you. You're going to be okay. And you're going to come back from this was so massive that I kind of felt like I didn't have a choice in a really beautiful way. Um, And I also then knew that I had the world's biggest, best support system beyond just my life partner, my husband, Um, but the industry that I'd chosen to work in, the peers and colleagues and friends that I'd made through this industry that truly wanted to see me not just survive the fire and the pandemic, but come through on the other end bigger and better than ever was really beyond encouraging and felt almost like this is predestined, you know? So like, I'm going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Um, This is just the really rough patch where we're getting it all out (laughs) right here in this three-year chunk. And then I'm going to be karmically leveled for 
the not fun parts of life for the next, like, let's say 40 years, please. And so when COVID ended and weddings got to come back and boy, did they ever, because then we had, you know, two years of engaged people that really wanted to tie the knot. It was this, this sort of new lens that I was looking at everything through. And I no longer wanted to just take any inquiry, take any wedding that came my way. Instead, I really only wanted to work with people that were really nice, were really sentimental, and mostly were really in love. Because that's the scenes my whole life, if you think about it, is just like love. It's always been about love. It's not been about friendship or adventure. It's been about love, loving the people that you choose to to be with, actively searching for people to love and to love you the way that you want to appreciate and experience that. And I think that I feel like I've finally kind of settled into, okay, this is my new niche. I'm I'm the lovey-dovey girl. I'm the one who wants the mushy-gushy stories and the the tales of joy and triumph that ultimately lead to, and that's why I love this person so much, because that's the part that didn't burn down, and that's the part that the pandemic did not take away. That's the part that stuck and got bigger than ever. And I also now that. we have a happy ending. We rebuilt. We're back in the canyon. We moved in a little over a year ago. Our new house is great. All the furniture is new, so that's weird. It's not like cool collected antiques over the millions of years, but we'll get there. I do a lot of eBay hunting now. Yes. <laughs> well, I love that because, you know, one of my favorite things about your your website, I'm trying to, the, your tagline, I think it was like event branding, stationery, and details for sentimental couples madly in love. Yeah. And I'm like, boom, that's literally what it is. And I, and I love that you are able to kind of know who you are for. I think we've we've all heard the like, oh, I'm not for everyone kind of thing. And it can kind of seem a little sassy or whatever. But I, I think that's actually, there's something to that, being able to oh, say, this-, this is who I am. And like, this is who I'm for. This is like where my, yeah. my tribe is. This is like the people that inspire me and like see me and that I can serve best. So I love yeah. that about you. And I love, I feel like you're really, you know, through the fire, the actual fire, you know, and COVID, you've really like risen through these ashes. And I really do think that there will be this kind of return to everything meaningful, private, special, and and handmade, you know, yeah. working hands and and taking pride in that. With that, I mean, I feel like we could just sit with you forever and pick your I know. This has been so fun. I want to hang out more. Stories. I mean, thankfully, I feel like I kind of am because literally, if you don't follow Carrie, go to the Idea Emporium on Instagram and watch her stories because every once in a while, she'll share kind of the process of making something. And it's like when you when you hold something that she's made, you know that there's love in it. Like it's it's like eating a meal that like your grandmother made for you. It's like it's so beautiful, then you can't describe it, but you know that it's just special. It's a treasure. But then when you get to see these stories of like how she actually makes them, like, oh, I knew that that that, that like letter pressed beautiful flower that was like coming out of the paper. Mm-hmm. I knew that must have taken a while, but like, wow, she actually had like nine steps to this process. One by one. Yeah. Of that flower. It's truly beautiful to watch her process. So do that. So anyway, as I obviously could just go on about you for hours. We do want to respect your time. I know you have lots of little beautiful things to be making. So we usually close off our interviews with um, a fast five round of questions. Okay. Or answer however, whatever comes to your mind first. 
Number one, do you have a morning routine? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. A long time ago, got rid of all the clocks in my life, which drives my husband nuts. I don't wake up at a specific time. The advantage to not having children is I can sleep in until I wake up. And I wake up whenever I wake up, and that's how the day begins. So I am not structured and, and rigid in any sort of a routine like that, which is a blessing and a curse at the same time. <laughs> I love it. Love it. So refreshing. Okay. Number two, one thing you cannot live without. My husband. Yeah, hands down. We not jokingly joke that if he dies before me, I'm going to plan him a beautiful funeral and then I will die the next day apart. That's 100% how that's going to go. Are you going to plan your own? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I have like a weird fascination with death and, and like the kind of macabre and funeral. This is a whole other podcast interview. Yeah. I actually, I actually really enjoy funeral design, celebration mm -hmm. of life design. The honoring of an entire multi-decade human experience, I find fascinating and really special. So, yeah, I think I'll probably definitely design our funeral. But it's also going to be a joint funeral because we're going to die in our sleep, holding hands like the couple at the end of the note. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Beautiful. If you could pick one favorite little special thing you created for your wedding, what would it be? Probably our vows. Our ceremony was really special. We got married in the round. So like instead of rows of guests looking at us, we were in the middle of a circle of all of them. And we wrote three sets of vows, one separate for each other and then one together that we wrote as a couple. And I think the set of vows that we wrote together as a couple, and then we asked everybody to sign them, um, like a basically like a witness, like a contract. These are the things that we're promising to each other was the best part of the wedding experience and also the most special part of the wedding experience. I love that. Favorite item you've ever created for a wedding other than your own? Ooh, that one's going to be hard, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's hard it, it's not in my wedding. <laughs> I know. It should be hard. Um, I don't know. I, my Overall, my favorite details are always the ones that are like storytelling, super mm -hmm. personal. I'd say my favorite projects that I've ever made, like from a like a physical production standpoint, was actually not a wedding. It was a tea party for a bunch of elderly women. So like in their 60s and they wanted a fairy garden theme. I was like, uh, yeah, you've got me. I made party favors for all of them that were rings that had a little teeny tiny glass dome, like the size of a dime. And inside the teeny tiny glass dome, I made teeny tiny mushrooms that were the size of a grain of rice and like splatter painted them with a toothbrush to get the white spots because they were tiny. And so it was this little miniature, like, world inside this ring that you would wear on your hand. And the, the idea that it was basically something you would make for, like, a kid's party, but then handing them to these, like, 60-year-old women and seeing them get so excited that they then transitioned back to being six instead of 60 was yes. so much fun. But also just the actual process of making the miniature mushrooms, the miniature toadstools was, like, a crafting dream. That doesn't happen every day. That was so much fun. Much fun. <laughs> so much fun. I love it. Keish, we're going to do one of those. Yes. Yes. Get, yeah. I was just thinking that. I was like, Where's an adult out? tea party? Yes. <laughs> Done. <laughs> I love it. Number five, if you had five people at your dinner table, dead or alive, who would you invite? I love this question. I don't mm -hmm. have a normal person answer. Not surprised. 
<clears throat> so I always played it differently. Instead of one dinner, it's five different dinners, right? Individual one-on-one -on -one conversations. And I would want four dinners with my dad because he died when I was 19 and I miss him every day. And I would do anything for another four dinners. And then one dinner with Martha Stewart. Yes, I knew Martha had to be in this interview. <laughs> yes. So, so here's a crazy mini story for you. About a month ago, I had dinner with Martha Stewart. What? You had dinner with her? I have full body chills. Yeah. What? Yeah. I like haven't talked about it publicly until this exact moment because it's too exciting and overwhelming for me to like put into words. I got the hottest tip of hot tips from a random wedding planner in Connecticut who slid into my DMs and said, Carrie, you don't know me, but I follow you and I know that you love Martha Stewart and I live in a small town in Connecticut and my best friend volunteers in a nonprofit and she just told me that the nonprofit is doing a fundraiser and they got Martha Stewart to do a private dinner. You should buy a ticket. And I was like, that's the hottest tip I'm ever going to get in my life. So I bought a ticket thinking it's probably going to be dinner for like a hundred or whatever. Yeah. No, it was dinner for 10. It was dinner for 10 people. It was me, Martha, and eight other people. Oh, my gosh. So I flew to Connecticut. <laughs> I went to this dinner. I was so excited that I spent weeks preparing. Like, I wrote down all of my questions for her because I knew I would freeze in real life and be, like, too excited and too starstruck and overwhelmed. And the very first thing that she said when she sat down was, okay, we're going to go around the circle. I want everyone to tell me your name, where you're from, and why the hell you're here, <laughs> which I thought was pretty I funny. Yes. And it got to me, and I said, my name is Carrie. I came from California to be here. The reason I'm here is because I have loved you since I was six years old. And when you play the dinner party question of if you could have dinner with any five people, dead or alive, it's four dinners with my dad and one dinner with you. So I cannot believe that this is actually happening. And she thought that was pretty funny. And I was like, oh, my God, I made Martha Stewart laugh. <laughs> I love it so much. It was magical. Well, on that note, we have one final question uh, that we love to ask. Um, but what was one quality that you had as a young woman that maybe at the time you didn't really appreciate, but looking back, you really love about yourself now? Ooh, I didn't see that one coming. That's a great question. Because I feel like my go-to answer would be creativity. But I did appreciate that as a kid. And I think that something that I learned to appreciate later in life would probably be the willingness to try. You know, there's a lot of trial and error in my life now. A lot of trial and error, a lot of trial and error in my work. And I think that's something that I learned as a young person. I don't know that it, I ever pinpointed it that way, but it has served me really well and is something that not everybody has. There, I think there's a lot of people that are not willing to, they don't want to fail, so they're not willing to try. And the amount of failure <laughs> that I experience on a daily basis is large, very, very large. I fail a lot. I try so many things that I fail so many times until I finally figure it out. And I think that it's the, the willingness to fail is a really helpful life skill. I'm not afraid of failing. I fail more often than I succeed. I love it. Thank you, guys. Aww. This has been really fun. So much fun. Um, where can people find you? Where do you like for people to reach out find to? Find me on the gram. Find me on the gram. I'm one of those people. I'm not cool with the TikTok kids. I'll be on Instagram until they tell me I'm not allowed to be on Instagram anymore. At the Idea Emporium, spelled with an E. 
And everybody tries to spell it with an I. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much, Carrie. We adore you and we can't wait to talk again soon. Right back at you. Ladies, let me know when you're ready for those Zao Renaults. We'll get after it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe to, follow, and share Meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness?